Hello and welcome to the Faber podcast. This is the second in our series of three history podcasts this autumn. In the first, I spoke to Dan Jones about his new book on the War of the Roses, The Hollow Crown. And the third programme will feature Jenny Uglo talking about the home front during the Napoleonic Wars. And I'm delighted to say that my guest in this programme is Helen Castor, whose new book on Joan of Arc is published this month. Helen studied and subsequently taught history at Cambridge, but since 2002 she has devoted herself to writing history full-time. Her books include Blood and Roses, a biography of the 15th century Paston family, and She-Wolves, called a gem of blood and thunder storytelling by the Sunday Times, which is about the women who ruled England before Elizabeth I. She's been one of the presenters on Radio 4's Making History since 2011, and has also presented history documentaries for BBC TV. Helen's new book on Joan of Arc vividly recreates the world of 15th century France, a land long divided between two warring parties, the Armagnacs and the Burgundians, who were in alliance with the English. In the struggle for supremacy, God's endorsement of a monarch's legitimacy mattered, but the medieval mind knew that evil spirits could cunningly pretend to be messengers from God. So much was at stake when Joan of Arc, an uneducated teenage peasant girl, appeared before the Dauphin's court in Chinon, claiming voices had told her she must lead his army against the English. Though the events which followed, smoothed and burnished over time, would become the stuff of legend, Joan's triumphant lifting of the siege of Orléans, her later assault on Paris, her capture, trial and execution, Helen Castor gives us a Joan, who, however remarkable, is also recognisable as a human being, and vulnerable to being turned, as she puts it, from knight to pawn in the brutal world of 15th century politics. Helen writes that she set out to understand Joan within her own world, the combination of character and circumstance, of religious faith and political machination, that made her a unique exception to the rules that govern the lives of other women. Helen's book is subtitled A History, rather than A Biography or a Life. I began by asking her why. I wanted to put Joan back in her world, in her context, because she is such a unique figure that most accounts of her life have her towering like a colossus over the landscape. And it means that we don't understand that landscape very well, I think. And what not understanding the landscape means is that we also don't actually understand Joan very well because we've taken her out of context and she becomes someone who has this extraordinary afterlife, which she does anyway, but as a, an icon, a legend, a myth, ultimately a saint. And what I wanted to try and do was get back to the, the human being, the living, breathing girl who walked onto the political stage in 1429 in a way that seems almost inexplicable. But I wanted to try to understand not only how the world looked to Joan insofar as that's possible, but I wanted to understand the world that she lived in through the eyes of the other people who were there, the people who, who knew her and the people who'd lived through the decades of war before she arrived so that we would understand a little better how on earth she came to do the seemingly impossible. And so that means pulling your camera right back and giving a sense of what the, the France that she was, she was born into and, and grew up in was like. So how, how did you decide where, where exactly to, put, you know, to position that camera? 
It was a difficult choice. What I knew I didn't want to do, and another reason why I'm not calling it a biography, is that I didn't want to start with Joan herself in the fields at Domremy hearing voices. Because if we do that, we are already buying into the story of the saint, of the of the legend, because we're picking out this peasant girl as something special. And we then walk into the political world with her instead of seeing her as the shock, the anomaly that she was. And I knew in order to understand the world she lived in, we had to understand a lot more about the war in which she would intervene so powerfully and particularly understand that it wasn't Joan who brought the idea of God into this war. It can often seem to us, I think, as though it's Joan whose power is derived from the whole idea that she says, I bring God with me, God is going to help. But actually, all wars in the Middle Ages were understood as expressions of God's will. And one of the greatest of those moments in the early 15th century was the Battle of Agincourt, because it was such such a dramatic battle where a small and exhausted and apparently very vulnerable English force overwhelmed the great might of the princes of France. And that therefore posed a particular challenge in terms of explaining what God was about. If you were English, it was simple. God, of course, was on the English side. One English chronicler reported in all seriousness that St George had been spotted on the battlefield fighting for the English. But it was much harder to explain if you were French, what on earth was going on? Why was God not supporting the most Christian kingdom of France? So as soon as I started thinking about it, I realized I wanted to start there, not with the Battle of Agincourt and the great English victory, but with the terrible defeat at Azincourt and how on earth the French set about trying to explain that to themselves and cope with the defeat in its aftermath, because it seemed to me that that was an instantly recognisable way for English-speaking readers to arrive in the moment, but with a twist that would get us thinking about different perspectives. So God was seen as potentially present in everything in the Middle Ages. So does that mean the culture was receptive, hypothetically, to a figure like Joan appearing? It certainly was. And one of the things we have to remember or, or be a little more aware of than the, the myth as it's usually told allows us to be, is that Joan wasn't the first person in 15th century France to arrive at court saying she had a message from God. Everyone knew that it was entirely possible for God to speak in various ways to men and women of completely sound mind. It didn't present itself as it would to us as probably being pathological. It could be that someone was mentally disturbed, that was a possibility. But the more obvious explanation for the medieval mind was that otherworldly beings were speaking. The big difficulty was to tell whether these were otherworldly beings from heaven or from hell. That was the million dollar question. So much so that the greatest theologian in early 15th century France, a, a scholar named Jean Gerson, had written three treatises on how to tell what kind of spirits were speaking, what's known as the discernment of spirits. So this is very much part of the culture, uh, both in terms of 
general piety and in terms of theology. If people you know, have in mind the rather crude ways of, of perhaps discerning whether, you know, folk ways of discerning whether someone's a witch. It, it, it was a world away from that. It was an extremely subtle, academic, theological kind of process, wasn't it? Process in both senses of the words. It was. There were some less subtle aspects. For example, when Joan arrived at the Dauphin's court, claiming what she was claiming, the first thing to check was that she was a virgin because a young unmarried girl arriving saying she had a message from heaven, if she wasn't a virgin, then nothing else she said need be taken seriously because her sexual purity was going to be the first sign of the bodily integrity, if you like, as a sign of the spiritual integrity that she claimed. So the first thing they do is they get a couple of court ladies to give her the once over and check that she is a maid as she claims to be. But then the theologians were brought in and that is a complex process of questioning. And the interesting thing to start with, with Joan, is that there is no clear-cut answer. For three or four weeks, she was questioned by the greatest theologians that the Dauphin could muster, and they didn't come up with a clear-cut answer. They didn't say, yes, she's definitely sent by God. What they ended up concluding was that they could find no evil in her, she showed piety and purity and humility and so on. They couldn't prove that her voices came to her from heaven, but there was no proof that they came from hell either. So the result of all this questioning was a suggestion that she should be put to the test. And the test that emerged from this process that she should be put to was that she should be sent to Orléans, which had been under siege for months by the English. And this limited objective was one that wouldn't cost the Dauphin very much in terms of resources, wouldn't cost him too much politically either in terms of putting his weight behind it, wouldn't be the grandest campaign ever ever launched, but it would be a concrete test to see if what she claimed were actually true. So it was a sort of practical, pragmatic solution to having not reached a conclusion via the, um, the, the sort of academic theological debate. Exactly. The theological debate being, as you say, a tricky matter, not least because Joan was a tricky proposition. Most visionaries who presented themselves, and, and I'm not saying they, there was one every week, but every decade or so when one arrived, um, they usually arrived with a spiritual guide, a confessor or a priest who'd been helping them and helping interpret what they said. There had been a couple of women in late 14th century and early 15th century France who had brought messages to do with the great schism in the church, but who had very much been operating within that rather more recognisable, clerically advised setup. The difficulty with Joan was that she came with no clerical advisor, no priest to mediate her visions. And what she said, even though there had been visionaries before, but what she said was, truly extraordinary. She didn't just bring a message for the king. What she was saying was, give me soldiers and I will fight. God wants me to lead your army in defense of your claims. And the idea that a teenage peasant girl might be standing at the head of the army of Armagnac, France, was so extraordinary. I think the theologians almost didn't know what to do with it. What they were confronted with was Joan's absolute certainty that this was what God wanted her to do. And 
the cause for which she proposed to fight was in such desperate straits at that moment that, of course, the possibility that she might be right, she might be telling the truth, was too tantalising to ignore. I find it an intriguing question to think about what kind of view of France and politics Joan would have had before she emerged on the stage. I mean, living in a, in a little village in, in Lorraine, how do you think she would have seen the war that was raging and what was at stake? The crucial thing here is that this wasn't just a war between England and France. It was a war between England and France, but mixed in with that was a civil war within France itself that had been raging for two decades by the time Joan arrived on the political scene. And this was a very bitter, a very brutal war in which after the great defeat at Agincourt, one side known as the Burgundians because they followed the Duke of Burgundy, the greatest nobleman in the, in the kingdom, made an alliance with the English in 1420 at the Treaty of Troyes. And therefore, nothing after that point was simple because the other side of the French, the Armagnac French, claimed to be the true French and the Dauphin claimed to be the true King of France. But for the Burgundian French, the Armagnacs weren't French at all. They were the false French. They were the ones who were following a false leader, a Dauphin who the Burgundians believed because he'd been responsible for the assassination of the old Duke of Burgundy, believed him to be a murderer and a perjurer and believed him to have forfeited his crown. So we have to remember this is a France that was divided on itself. And where Joan lived in the far east of the kingdom, though it was remote from the great centres of power, whether Paris or the Dauphin's court at Chinon or any of the other great centres we might think of, it did lie in a very, very disputed region. She lived in a village that was loyal to the Armagnacs, to the Dauphin, but lay very, very close to Burgundian territory. Burgundian soldiers had swept through Domremy sometime before she had experience of having to flee the fighting, and the conflict was very real in her home, in her home village. So even though Clearly, there were many of the complexities of the war and the campaigning that she couldn't have known about. She had a very profound sense of the conflict itself. One word that, that kept occurring to me about her behaviour was in, impatient. It seemed that she was always eager to act, to press ahead, to achieve things. And as her career goes on, she meets lots of obstacles. You know, she, she gets more embroiled in politics or she sometimes encounters the reality of storming a, a castle or trying to lift a siege. But that impatience is always there, that desire always to be pressing ahead and not just marking time. That's exactly right. And I think it's one of the things that brings across very clearly, on the one hand, her utter belief in her message and also how young she was. She was only 17 when she arrived at the court, and there is something of that energy, that drive of youth in everything she does and says. Put those two things together, and they're very powerful. And of course, that's what creates her miraculous moment in the first place. She's walking into a situation where there is enormous trauma, cynicism, political division, bickering and argument about what should happen after years and years of, of 
attritional war. And Joan arrived with the complete certainty of what should be done. She took that to Orléans, she seized her moment, the test that she was given uh, to lift the siege of Orléans, and that utter certainty and energy cut through that situation like a knife through butter. There are a, a remarkable few days when she first arrived at Orléans because what the theologians had said was she should not be prevented from going to Orléans with troops. So the king took them, the Dauphin took them at their word and gave Joan armour, a very fine suit of armour, gave her some troops, gave her supplies. She went to Orléans. But it became clear when she arrived there that no one had really thought operationally about what would happen, who was going to be in charge, where were the troops going to be. And actually the troops sort of left her there and went home for a few days, as it were. I mean, went back to base. And Joan was furious, incandescent, rampaging round Orléans, trying to get the lie of the land, but also raging at the fact that she knew what she'd been sent there to do and the troops weren't there to let her do it. So once the troops had come back, that certainty that what needed to happen was attack in the name of God, that was what pushed Joan forward. That's what struck the fear, literally, of God into her enemies. And that's what allowed Orléans to be rescued. Historians have variously suggested over the years that perhaps she did show truly extraordinary military savvy and strategic know-how given where she came from and who she was and, and various arguments have been put forward to suggest that she was almost supernaturally able in, in that kind of way. It seems to me reading the accounts of what she did that she only really had one tactic and that was attack now. And when it worked it was wonderful but the impatience that you describe became more difficult for her and for those around her as time went on. Because success at Orléans and subsequently combined with that perpetual drive forward creates problems, doesn't it? If you're standing back, if you're the king or if you're at court and you're thinking, well, you know, how, how far can this be pushed and, and what happens afterwards? So her single-mindedness certainly brought problems. I, I had the growing sense that there was a feeling of, you know, what, what do we do with her? How do we, what, what do we do with this force of nature? That's so right, because a miracle is a wonderful thing. It's a, a, an amazing thing and it can change a situation out of all recognition. But it's a moment. What happens next? Joan clearly believed that her mission would continue. She'd uh, freed Orléans and then she led the king at the head of a great army deep into enemy territory to Reims, the traditional seat of coronation for the French kings. And there he'd been anointed with the thousand-year-old holy oil that all previous French kings had been anointed with. This really mattered. That was the miraculous moment. But what next? Joan was very clear. You push on to Paris, you attack and take Paris, the miracles will keep happening. But it didn't seem that clear cut to her king and the men around him who knew that in the long term, while it was wonderful that God had helped in that moment, could they really expect God to keep intervening in that way? In the long term, they knew that in order to defeat the English utterly and to reunite the kingdom, they needed to try to detach the Burgundian French from that alliance and to negotiate. Joan didn't do negotiation, she didn't do compromise. What happened was a sort of uneasy mixture of the two. The negotiations were going on about which Joan wasn't happy at all. But meanwhile, the momentum of her campaign, her mission, meant that the king, clearly not wholeheartedly, 
was persuaded to push his army on towards Paris and Joan was allowed to attack Paris. But Paris was a very different proposition from Orléans. Paris had the greatest fortifications west of Constantinople, miles and miles of huge walls with artillery ranged all around them. And Joan did attack Paris. She attacked Paris in the only way she knew how, as she always had done before. She led her men into the ditch at the foot of the walls and said, it'll be ours by sundown. But by sundown, she had a crossbow bolt through her thigh. Paris hadn't fallen. And the next day, the king ordered the retreat to be sounded. One day, she'd been given to take Paris. The miracle hadn't happened. And from that point on, it's really very difficult to know what to do with her. If the miracles have stopped, she can't just be another captain among the king's captains. She's a teenage girl. She only works as a leader if she's a miraculous leader, and that she wasn't after Paris. Helen, I'm not going to ask you about the trial because I hope people will, will go and read the book and, and go into all the, the, the fascinating detail that's, that's in it about the trial and, and subsequently. But what I did want to ask you about is how graspable is her voice and is her character? Because on one hand, we've got a wealth of documentation. And on the other, that has been filtered. It's been transcribed and it's been translated and it's been redacted and so on. So how graspable do you think she is in, in the documents that we've been left? I think we can get to a sense of Joan, but it's a much more complex and layered sense of Joan than, again, the story of the saint and the legend would have us believe. The trial document, the trial transcript, is the most remarkable historical document I've ever worked on. Recorded in such detail, days and weeks and months of interrogation of a single witness, Joan herself. As you rightly say, this is not verbatim. It was noted by two notaries in the French that was being spoken. We don't have that entire French transcript. We have a, a section of it. What we do have in its entirety is the Latin transcript, the translation which they made just after the end of the trial of the whole transcript. So it's Joan's voice. Having spoken in French, we have some of that as written down by the notaries of the court, then translated into Latin, mostly recorded in indirect speech. So it's mostly she said that, but occasionally you get direct speech recorded. And every time I've used direct speech of Joan herself in the book, it's those moments where her direct speech is recorded. I've tried to be very scrupulous about that. It's still transcribed by the notaries and so on. It's, it, it's still filtered through that process. But she speaks with such a sense of herself and her mission throughout much of the trial that it's really this transcript the great irony is the transcript was made and recorded in such detail so that it could stand as a monument down the ages of her heresy, of her error, of all the ways in which she was wrong. And it's actually the transcript and being able to hear her voice through that, that in a sense has created so much of the legend we have today. But what I think gets left out in the legend is the way in which the process of the trial itself affects her and the changes in what she says, both in the early stages of the trial, as you say, I hope people will read it because I think it's completely fascinating, both in the early stages of the trial where she is being pushed day by day 
to say more and more and more. And to begin with, she starts out by saying that she'll speak about virtually nothing, but she carries on and carries on and is pushed into talking in more and more detail. And a lot of the details that we take for granted in the story of the saint, when the voices first appeared to her in the field at Domremy, what did she hear? This is stuff that comes from quite late on in the trial and it's, it's things that she's never spoken of before. And what I was trying to do in my account of it was leave space for anyone reading the book to have their own response to what she's saying and to read it in terms of how much is this the revelation of a single truth that she's always been holding on to or is it actually that this story is developing and elaborating as she goes under this excruciating pressure in the court and then finally of course when the trial comes to a conclusion and her certainty begins to falter for the first time because I, I'm convinced, I mean, reading the trial transcript, it seems clear to me that her strength came from the fact that she believed she was going to be rescued. God would rescue her, of course. And the moment when it becomes clear for the first time, really horrifyingly clear that rescue from heaven isn't coming and what that subsequently does to her, I think is harrowing and and fascinating and it's what gets covered over by the the arc no pun intended but the arc of the story that we all know i had the sense as you described it of her being forced to put things into words which she probably regarded as, as ineffable and yet this process was pushing her and pushing her to try to pin her down and express these things, which probably were beyond expression as she felt them. I think that's right. For the theologians who were interrogating her, the point was to try, just as the theologians on the other side had done two years earlier, to try to get details that would allow them to establish whether these voices, these visions, came from heaven or not. And so they were asking questions in ever more detail about exactly what she'd seen and exactly what she'd heard. And what they knew, but Joan didn't, because Joan was not educated at all, let alone a theological scholar, was that certain details would demonstrate one thing about what kind of voices these were, and other details might demonstrate something else. So the theologians knew, for example, that according to the theology of the late medieval church, angels were purely spiritual beings. And that if she were truly describing an angel, she must describe their spiritual essence, because that would prove that they were heavenly, not hellish. But of course, as the questions went on and on and on, what were the voices like? What did they look like? What did you see? I think Joan was striving to prove the truth of what she heard and saw. And communicate that truth through the details that her interrogators seemed to want. So she began to talk in more and more concrete terms. She began to talk of particular saints. She began to talk of faces and hair and crowns and an angel who could walk into the throne room at Chinon, not realizing that these were concrete details that didn't serve to prove the truth that she knew was true. Instead, they served to prove 
something that was too concrete. The devil was in these details. Let me ask you finally, Helen. You were working on on material that dates back 600 years, all, all the issues of partisanship, the issues of a completely different mentality, a world in which visions and voices were, were conceivable as the as communication from God. Did you nonetheless at times find yourself sort of moved? Did you, did you sort of feel a sort of little spark of human connection, as it were, with this, this, this teenage girl that you were writing about? More than a spark, I, I, I felt so involved. Um, I think writing particularly the section of the book that is to do with her trial, I found deeply harrowing, particularly writing it as I did day by day, trying to go through that experience and unravel the interrogations as they happened. Joan is is there alone, a young woman, alone in her cell with soldiers, alone in the courtroom with at times more than 60 clerics assembled around her, sometimes when they come to her in her cell, claustrophobically intimidated by this group of powerful, learned men. So in human terms, you cannot help but feel the horror of that situation and the horror of the inevitability of what comes. One of the most moving moments for me and one of the most difficult to write was actually the morning of her death, a final visit that was paid to her by some of her judges in her cell, not as part of the trial, because by this stage the trial was over, she was going to die that afternoon, but as a last attempt to save her life. And it's very clear by then again, I don't want to say too much, but it's clear to me that in many important ways she's broken. She had thought she would be rescued. She hadn't been rescued. She had therefore given in and recanted her visions, but had then not been able to live with herself and had gone back on that submission. And what she says in her last morning is evidence that many historians have simply jettisoned. They've said this was clearly fabricated after the event by her judges to try and justify their position and what they were doing. I don't read it like that at all. I think if they'd been fabricating a confession, it would have been much more straightforward than that and much less psychologically acute than the account we get. But what she says about what she truly heard and saw on her last morning, I find overwhelmingly moving because to me, it's comprehensible how someone living in that world could have heard and seen in what she describes the voice of the God that she knew was there. And it is much less concrete, much less tangible than anything we hear in the traditional myth. But to me, there is an absolute humanity and reality to that that meant that, yeah, I found it very powerful and quite overwhelming. I was talking to Helen Castor about Joan of Arc, a history, which is out now in hardback. For more information about the book, visit faber.co.uk. On the Faber channels on Vimeo and YouTube, you'll find a short video featuring Helen talking about the book. You can make sure you never miss the podcast by subscribing to it on iTunes. It's free, quick and easy. Go to iTunes and type Faber in the search box on the podcast page, and a subscription is just a couple of clicks away. Or you can explore the whole podcast archive on SoundCloud. It now amounts to over 100 hours of interviews. Just search for Faber Books SoundCloud, 
You'll find my recent interview with Dan Jones on the War of the Roses there. Until next time, when I'll be completing this trio of conversations with historians with my interview with Jenny Uglow, thank you very much for listening, and goodbye.